Uh, today is the final message, uh, the 18th message and final message of this series, Cognitive Behavioral Theology. And uh, it has addressed, hopefully, how we can have, uh, regardless of what negative emotions might be prevailing upon us, that, that we can have this firm foundation in Christ Jesus, that uh, apart from this firm spiritual foundation, this commitment to Jesus Christ, that unless this is the touchstone of our lives, uh, we will never have the holistic well-being that God would desire for us, regardless of how mentally well you are, regardless of how physically fit you are, you will never have the wholeness and completeness that God desires for all of us apart from that personal commitment to Jesus Christ, which always becomes your cornerstone and your touchstone regardless of what thoughts you might be having inside your head. Uh, it's a series that grew out of a context. That is the context of a pandemic coming out the other side of this, hopefully after a two-year journey, two years that have been unprecedented for the church, at least for the past 100 years, and much of what has been said would not be understood if it did not have this context. And apart from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, when it comes to properly understanding the Word of God and how it desires to speak life into us, apart from that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, context is vital to biblical understanding. It is vital. Context is always vital if the hearer is going to appropriately understand the message that the communicator is trying to put forth. Uh, scripture. Let's take the New Testament. Uh, it was written by particular authors to particular people in particular regions and places dealing with particular issues. Now, of course, we know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, they were written to record uh, the teachings of Jesus, to record his life and ministry, the things that he said and did. But when it comes to the remaining bulk of the New Testament, what we call the epistles or letters of, from the apostles, uh, those were written to, to address specific issues. It's not unlike the context that we have had these past two years. Because there's been a variety of things exposed over the past two years if we've been attuned to our faith and the exercising of our faith. Pastors everywhere have seen uh, negative behaviors that from people they've never seen before. Negative emotions like anxiety, depression, many have been diagnosed for the first time for, with neurological disorders that have been beneath the surface. But with the angst and anxiety of the past two years, those things have come to the forefront. Beyond anxiety, beyond depression, there's been anger. There's been despair. There's been, there's been childishness, immaturity from individuals that, that you would have never expected. There's been much exposed in the past two years. Those that were marginal in their faith, all just out on the perimeter, kind of sporadic and marginal, many of those have just, been, have just walked away completely. Many have been exposed to be like Demas, who Paul in the New Testament in his letter to Timothy, Demas, who, who forsook his calling. There's been those who have forsaken their calling because they love this present world more. And so there, just as there is a context for what I have been communicating to you, there was a context in which Paul wrote his letters. In circumstances not unlike ours, an exile experience where everything had now become 
disruptive. The shine, the shine and the newness of, of this newfound faith has now, has now been caused to dim because of the adversities and circumstances of life. And so Paul and the other writers are writing to people that are greatly discouraged. Many have already walked away from their faith completely and others are, are being tempted to walk away, whether it's dealing with, with, with heresy or whether it's dealing with, with immorality, whether it's dealing with, with persecution. There's, there's a number of things and, and the churches are discouraged. That's why they have written to Paul and Paul has responded and we have these letters. And so unless you know the context, that Paul was addressing, you cannot properly understand the meaning of the text. Context is vital. If we don't know the context in which the author was writing, the context in which the people were living in that day and time, if we don't know the issues that were prevailing upon them, the temptation is, is to take isolated verses and to impose upon them a meaning that was never intended, that is not verifiable scripturally, is not viable in, in the light of God's word. And most often we lift verses out of context and apply a meaning that, uh, a meaning that accommodates the lifestyle we want. Which brings us to our text today. Philippians chapter four in verse 13. Where Paul and we, this is a continuation of the verses that we had last week. We're just picking up in the next verse, verse 13. Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, having said everything that I've said about context, I think it's vital that we understand what it doesn't say, what this verse does not say. What is it not saying when Paul makes the declaration, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We've all used it in, uh, in our daily life. We've all probably posted it somewhere. We've all, we've all probably written it on a card somewhere. But I would say that, that this verse, Philippians 4.13, along with probably four or five other verses in Scripture, are probably the verses most often taken out of context and used and applied to some sort of triumphal attainment of the great American dream. Which is the way these verses were never intended. I'm thinking of a verse like, like uh, this week I was trying to think of what, what verses immediately come to mind. Of those that, that are taken out of context most often. Immediately thought of Luke chapter 11 verse 9. Ask and you will receive. Ask and it will be given. Now each of these abuses of this text, most often whenever you hear them taken out of context, they're usually used by, by, by different, different groups in different settings. This is the favorite life verse of televangelists. The proponents of the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. Name it and claim it. All you've got to do is claim Luke chapter 11, verse 9 for yourself. All you've got to do is have enough faith. Want a new car? You want that Ferrari? All you've got to do is have enough faith. Just ask and you will receive. I really don't think that's the application Jesus was making. I mean, if it was, wouldn't Jesus have taken advantage of that? You have to go all the way back to the beginning of that, of that passage because the, the disciples had asked Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. 
All right, let me tell you something, boys. You want a new cart and you want a new box? This is what you do. Ask and you will receive. Let me get you a shiny new cart, Cadillac cart that just came out. And boys, if you just have enough faith, if you just name it and claim it, if you will just speak it into, if you will just speak it into being, you're like, no, that's not what he's talking about at all. That's something conjured up by the church in the West and its materialistic desires. Jesus was talking about the things of God, a heartbeat for the things of God. When you have a heartbeat and a passion for the things of God, when God has given, when God has called you and he has renewed your heart, when you have been, when you have experienced the new birth, when, when the salvation of God and the likeness of Christ being accomplished in you is your heart's desire, that's what you hunger and thirst for, ask and it will be given. But there's another one, and I call this the hallmark of Bible verses. And that's Romans 8, 28. For we know God causes all things to work together for good. And everybody stops right there. But it continues for those who are called according to his purposes. And it's taken out of context. It tries, it tries to gloss over all of our hardships. And, you know, it's kind of like a head in the sand type mentality. These things aren't really happening. Listen, good is going to come out of this. And, and they're using good in terms of, of what I would desire for myself in this earthly life. But that's not what the good is in that context. The good, the good, when all things come together for good. It's talking about the, the likeness of Christ being made manifest in you. What's another one? What about, what about Jeremiah? And what I want you to see, there's a pattern here of these verses that are lifted out of context. And, and this is a phenomenon that, that's unique to the Western church. We lift these Bible, these Bible verses out of context and, and we use them for our own individual gain. We use it for our own individual triumphalism. That's the, that's the spirit in which we quote them. When in fact, these verses were written, written to a group of people, a people who would be the people of God. For instance, Jeremiah 29, 11, this is one we quote to people when we don't know what to say whenever they're suffering from terminal illness or someone has died. And whatever, for whatever reason, we have this burden that we have to say something. And most often it's a Bible verse like Jeremiah. For I know the plans I have for you to prosper, not for harm, to give you hope. A future. When it's written to a people in exile, it's written to a nation. It's written to the, to the nation of Israel saying, you have a responsibility and obligation. Where you are, where you are planted there in Babylonian exile, I expect you to flourish as the people of God, to be a witness, to be a light to the world. Plant gardens. You're going to be here a while. Let your children marry. Build homes. Don't get bogged down by the circumstances. This is all according to the providential purposes of God. My purposes will not be denied. My favorite one is when people talk about their crises and they pass through. I'm just claiming the Bible verse for myself that says God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not really in the Bible. That's part of the problem. 
It's not really taking it out of context when it's not in the Bible at all. It's really a, an abuse and, and a misuse of, I guess, of what, of what Paul is communicating in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and in verse 13 where he says, no temptation has overtaken you except something common to mankind and God is faithful so he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you will be able to endure it. He's talking about avoiding the mistakes of Israel. See, it's misleading. Paul would not even make a quote like that, that God will never give you more than you can handle. Listen, don't believe that. You live long enough. You're going to experience more in life than you can handle. That's the point Paul is making, as we'll see in a moment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, through him who strengthens me. I couldn't do this on my own. You say, well, Bobby, what's, man, what's the big deal? You're coming down kind of heavy on taking those Bible verses out of context. I mean, isn't the main thing you got, I mean, you got people quoting the Bible. But no, Context is the means to truth. You have to, truth emerges out of proper context. And to use these verses the way that, that the American church desires to use them to prop up some great, the pursuit of some great American dream, all the amenities that, that this American life can offer you, truth is not found in that kind of use and abuse. It's only in context that truth becomes known. Otherwise, we're just pulling out Bible, Bible verses as a pretext for the life we're just choosing to pursue. So it's important what it doesn't say. Well, what does it say? What does Paul mean when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me? Now, again, Context is everything. Remember what we dealt with last week, verses 10 through 12, the Philippians. We know church at Philippi has sent a gift to Paul. He's been under Roman guard for nearly three years. The gift has been received, and Paul, Paul says to them in, in response, he said, but I, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but, but you lacked an opportunity to act. Paul seems kind of ingracious there, doesn't he? I mean, where he, where he says uh, that now at last you've revived your concern for me. But that's not it at all. Paul is sympathetic to their circumstances. Paul's, I, I understand as well as anyone what it is to have circumstances that preclude you doing some things that you would like to do. I understand that fully. <laughs> Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked an opportunity to act. You know what Paul rejoiced greatly in? Not the gift. He rejoiced that when opportunity presented itself to the people of God, that God was doing such a work of transformation. See, this, these are a people in whom Paul has a vested interest. Paul has poured himself into this church. 
And what delights him is not the gift that he received. The gift is neither here nor there to him. That's why some people are critical of Paul. The gift is neither. What what excites him greatly, what brings great joy to his life is seeing how God is working in the hearts and the lives of these people, bringing about in a greedy world a heart that is sensitive, a heart that is compassionate, a heart that is responsive. And when the opportunity presents itself, presents itself, they did something. Revived something within him. Even in his present circumstances, seeing how God was fashioning and transforming the hearts and the lives of those in whom he had a vested interest. See, Paul says, when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he's talking about his, his circumstances. He said, not that I speak from need in verse 11, not that I speak from need, for I have learned to be content. This is, this is what I've learned over the course of my, my lifetime in my faith journey. I've learned to be content in what, whatever circumstances I am that connects to all things in verse 13. I know how to get along with little, and I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. Again, that connects down to verse 13 to all things. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things, whether, whether much or little, hardship or prosperity, external circumstances don't come to bear upon me in my sense of well-being. I realize I'm part of a larger narrative of what God is doing and what God is accomplishing. Where I am, and whether it's a good time or a bad time, I'm providentially stationed. I've learned to be content. This isn't all the story to be written. The providential purposes of God will not be denied. And so Paul never used his weakness or his perceived weakness in these kind of circumstances as as an excuse. When he says, I can do all things through Christ and him who strengthens me, it's active voice. Paul's not sitting there as a victim. In fact, if you go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, remember Paul had prayed for thorn in the flesh to be removed When God told him that my grace is sufficient for you, Paul then said in in verse 9 in response, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I delight in weaknesses and insults and distresses and persecutions and difficulties in behalf of Christ. For when I'm I'm weak, then I'm strong. See, in these in these circumstances that would make him appear to be weak, he said, oh, this is the finest hour. This is when the hand of God is revealed and made known the strength of Christ that is in me because anybody else would expect an individual to wilt under these kind of circumstances. In fact, nowhere is Paul's attitude about this being under Roman guard better revealed Then back in chapter 1 of Philippians, in in, in verse 12, 
where he is so thrilled about his opportunity. We see his circumstances. He says, my circumstances have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. I'm having, I'm having opportunities being under Roman guard that I otherwise would not have had an opportunity to share my faith. I mean, the Praetorian Guard is coming through here. And they're hearing me talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They, they are seeing me study the scriptures. They, they are hearing my prayers. I would never have opportunity to do that apart from these present circumstances. Do you know that there are some scholars that are actually critical of Paul, some Western scholars that are critical of Paul because of his lack of response to the gift that he received? And only, only in Western culture, in a culture obsessed with things, would they be upset with Paul about not giving proper thanks. When he says to them, essentially, you know, your gift is neither here nor there to me. I've learned how to be content. And the reason he says that, it's not that he's rude. It's not that he's appreciative, but he's, he's a pastor and he's more concerned about the transformation of their faith because his expectation is, as we see back up in verse nine, is that you're gonna be an imitator of me. The things you have seen in me, heard from me, you do these things, you practice these things. So what Paul desires for the people to see in him in the most adverse of circumstances, what I want you to see in me is that I'm content wherever I am. Whether times are good or bad, and this is the attitude I want you to have. This is the mindset that I want you to develop as a follower of Christ, see it and imitate it. That my well-being, it will not be dependent upon circumstances. I will see in whatever lot in my life, whatever situation, whatever station in my life, where my feet are, this is a providential moment. There is never a time that I am outside of the providential purposes of God. And that there are opportunities for witness and sharing for the Christian faith to be displayed that otherwise would not have happened. That's what Paul is saying regardless of circumstances in all things, active voice because of him who is in me, I continue on. And so it begs the question in closing, if we rightly understand what it doesn't say, if we rightly understand what it does say, then the key turn this morning is, what do you say? What do you say when adversity strikes? What do you say in your times of prosperity? Because Paul realized that, 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 that there's probably a greater burden and a greater opportunity for being led astray in prosperity than there is in poverty. It's easy to be humble in poverty. I'm, I'm immune to both, Paul says, because my sense of well-being is not based upon external circumstances. What do you say? What do you say when all of your dreams 
all of your hopes, all of your aspirations, all of your beliefs are nailed to a tree and die. What do you say? In those circumstances, you keep going, you get up and put one foot in front of the other, do you keep pushing, do you keep leaning into it, do you go forward, do you keep going, or do you just sit there? Do you sit there with the victim's mentality? Allowing the negative feelings, thoughts, and emotions to wash in your mind. Immobilizing you. Holding you hostage. Stealing away the valuable days of life that God breathes into you. What do you say? Because what you say determines how you spend your future days. So what Paul is saying here is I'm under Roman guard. I believe in something that is transcendent to my circumstances. I have a hope that is beyond my present tense circumstance, good or bad. This is not where my hope lies. And so you get up, you get dressed, and you go. You go forward. You get up the next day and you do it again. You do it again and you do it again with the belief that there is something on the other side of this, that I'm a part of the bigger narrative of God, the redemptive purposes of God that transcend any circumstances that this life can impose upon me. See, that's really the cardinal principle that is set forth in all, in all the epistles that we have in the New Testament. That's, a, that's the cardinal principle that, that each one of them are establishing regardless of the particular place, the particular people, the particular circumstance. You know what the cardinal doctrine is? Keep going. Don't give up. Keep pressing. Endure. Persevere. There's something on the other side of this. You may have read in the scene on the news, March 9th, there was a 144-foot wooden vessel, three-mast wooden ship that was found in the Weddell Sea, Antarctica, South Pole, in 10,000 foot of water. It caught my attention when the endurance was discovered because back somewhere in the beginning of, of the pandemic, I was, Wall Street Journal uh, two or three times a week has some, have some really good book reviews and I look there for book recommendations sometimes. And there was this one particular book review of this, uh, of this nonfiction that was written about South Pole exploration. 
And it was a very intriguing article. I was really good. And anyway, at the, at the very end, these reviewers will, you know, give it a thumbs up, kind of a thumbs up summation, you know. And, uh, and I thought it was interesting at the end of that, that summary, that book summary, he said, it's, it's really a good book. It's worth buying. But it's not as good as the two definitive works on South Pole exploration. Well, I went and bought the other two books instead of that book <laughs> that was being reviewed. I thought, if I'm going to read about the South Pole, I'm going to read the definitive work. And so it was, it was about the endurance, that, that ship. And it was about Ernest Shackleton, well-known explorer. Took 28 men on the endurance. Ice began to freeze. The boat was trapped in November of November 21st of, of 1915. The boat was trapped in ice and, and with, with the, the freezing, it, it began to slowly sink. Shackleton and, and his men, his crew, they unpacked all their supplies and they, uh, they, they essentially made camp there around the boat, tried to stay with the boat for, for months as it was slowly sinking in, into the ice, being crushed by the ice. They realized they, they needed to do something, so they, they, they broke camp, got in the three lifeboats that they had, and made their way to, to Elephant Island, which is uninhabitable. I mean, it's the most inhospitable place, uninhabited. But anyway, they, they stayed there. Once they arrived there, Shackleton took uh, the James Laird, uh, the James Caird, which was another one of their, their, their boats, their lifeboat. Shackleton and five of the crew began making an 800-mile journey. This is an open boat. An 800-mile journey to South Georgia Island. They were trying to find or trying to get to a whaling station where they could put together a rescue mission to come back to Elephant Island. An 800-mile trek in an open boat, 17 days later, they arrive to South Georgia. Not where they wanted to land exactly, so it required a very vigorous, 36-hour hike to the whaling station. There they put together a rescue team, another vessel, larger vessel, to go back to Elephant Island. And that they did, and it was a, a rescue mission that was headed by, by Shackleton himself. And they made it back to Elephant Island on August 30th, 1916, 128 days after they had initially left Elephant Island. Shackleton and all 28 crew, alive, well, and rescued. After 128 days, they broke camp in one hour and left. Broke camp after 128 days, broke camp in one hour and left. One of the most intriguing parts of that story in that nonfiction book was those that were left behind, the 23 that were left behind on, on Elephant Island. Because the one put in charge by Shackleton upon his departure was a man by the name of Frank Wilde. And for 128 days, Frank Wilde, the first command given to his men, was lash up and stow your gear. The boss might return today. Lash up 
stow your gear because the boss might return today. And so for 128 days, that's what they did. And when the boss returned, they were ready. They were prepared to go. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 22, Jesus said, yes, I'm coming soon. So between now and then, what will you say when your adversity comes? Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Good or bad, it doesn't matter. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What do you say? When you walk into the weight room, the Texas Tech football training facility, when you walk through those double doors, you are faced by a wall at the end of the room. And on that wall, there are these words. There is no substitute for strength. And there is no excuse for the lack of it. (laughs) There is no substitute for strength. And there's no excuse for the lack of it. Follower of Christ, I will say to you, Regardless of what adversity you may face or you may be facing even now, there is no substitute for strength in Christ Jesus. And there's no excuse for the lack of it. What you must do is exercise it and go forward. Let's pray together. Father, your word always comes as a double-edged sword. It cuts and it divides. It creates a battle within. It makes us examine our own lives. And Father, we have been exposed in so many ways these past two years. Some good, some bad. Much immaturity has been exposed. Too much confidence in the things of this world and the systems of this world and the illusion of stability that they offer. But Father, I pray that we have learned through this, that we would be a people that have been shaped and transformed into something different than we were two years ago. That we will be a people of endurance, persevere regardless of circumstances, because we have leaned into the strength of Christ Jesus. Our hope is in Him and the story that is beyond this story. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.